welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi We are live now. Yes. So should I start? Ma'am, I'll introduce you. Then you, I'll okay. hand you. Okay. Me. Yeah. Okay. Namaste and good evening, everyone. I am Ritika Gupta, Assistant Director at IMFRI Impact and Policy Research Institute, the Bahavevam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan. Extend my heartiest welcome to you all to this hashtag web policy talk. We are here for us. talk series or uh, hashtag water and climate on water and climate change challenges for india the series is being organized by center for environment climate change and sustainable development at imfri tarun bharat sang india water portal and parmarth the speaker for today is dr anjul prakash i would now like to welcome our moderator for today dr indira khurana who is senior expert in water sector and vice chair at tarun bharat sang alwar thank you thank you uh, thank you uh, ritika uh, on behalf of center for environment climate change and sustainable development at impri india water portal un water parmarth and tarun bharat sam i welcome you all and especially as speaker for uh, the, this afternoon dr anjal prakash on the session on uh, water and uh, climate as uh, ritika briefly mentioned uh, today is the first of a series of talks that we are going to have around the issue of uh, water and uh, water and climate we all know that water is essential for life and for the very existence of the planet it is also recognized as a human right by the united uh, nations it is essential for socio economic growth achieving food livelihood and health security it is the foundation of peace and uh, and overall uh, security including personal security and yet the question we need to ask ourselves is that do we really understand the value of water when we say that water is life do we really understand the implications uh, of you know of that whole statement that water is life because as we all know uh, the world is facing a challenging water crisis and this uh, crisis includes all aspects of water right from access affordability quality adequacy and sustainability of the water resources even the world economic forum has recognized water as one of the top risks faced by, by the world uh, i think uh, we all uh, as we are uh, going through this trying phase of the covid-19 pandemic we all are now realizing that we live in an age where it is no longer possible to ignore or discount the connectedness of our action we are, with the impact that this action of ours has on nature and on the planet basically on the different elements of nature uh, be it water forests land biodiversity etc we are as i said we are living through a really really de- devastating challenge right now even as we have to address the challenges that are already coming in not trickling but as a steady flow because of the impact of uh, climate uh, change which we will need to address through medication prevention and through adaptation measures 
For the second year in a row, the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Risk Report 2021 recognized uh, that environment degradation as the number one long-term risk. It classifies climate change as a catastrophic link and stresses that the shift to a green economy cannot be delayed till the COVID-19 uh, pand pandemic resides. Uh, as we are all aware, one major impact of climate change is going to be on water. Not is this only causing uh, disasters and increase in what we call as, ironically, as natural disasters, namely floods, drought, uh, cyclones, storms, but it's going, also going to affect the availability and the quality of water. And thus there's an urgent need for understanding the relation between water and climate and climate and water. Basically how the two are closely interlinked, interlinked, how do they affect each other? And we need to do this so that we can inform, we are ourselves informed, we can inform others so that through water, through literacy campaigns, we can take the appropriate decision that is required at all levels. So it is with this in mind that uh, these organizations came together and decided that we have a series of sessions where we invite and request uh, speakers from different areas who have experience, knowledge, research undertaken on this issue which links water and climate and see what the different aspects are saying, what's the evidence pointing towards and then collectively look at what is this package like and how can this inform practice and policy. So today we have with us, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Anjal Prakash. Uh, I'd just like to introduce uh, Anjal Prakash before I request him to go ahead with his uh, presentation. Anjal is from the Indian School of Business and he will be speak speaking to us on water and climate change challenges for India. Anjal uh, currently holds the position of research director and adjunct <coughs> associate professor at the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad. He's also worked with the Terry School of Advanced Studies and he has earlier been associated with ISIMODE. And he has also been the lead coordinating author for the IPCC special report on the oceans and cryosphere in a changing climate. He's also a lead author in the chapter on city settlements and key infrastructure in the working, one of the working groups of the IPCC second assessment report. And he's also nominated as a member of the Gender Task Force of IPCC. <coughs> Sorry. Anjal has more than two decades of experience on working on water and climate issues. And a strong focus of his has been on gender, which we really, really excited to, uh, to learn about. And he has authored several books uh, on water, sanitation, and climate change. And he also writes several opinion pieces in various uh, uh, newspapers. So without further ado, I will invite uh, Dr. Anjal to go ahead with this presentation. Over to you, Anjal. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, yeah, so let me just load my presentation. Uh, thank you so much, Indra, for this generous introduction. One thing you forgot to introduce about is that I have been trained under you. Uh, so you were, you were my boss and a very good colleague. Uh, so I've learned to learn from you, Indra. So that is- Thank you. Missed. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much, and I'm really I'm glad to um, uh, you know present. Um, what I'll do is that uh, there are two, two key uh, aspects of my presentation today. Uh, next uh, ten to twelve minutes, I'll cover 
um, as part of IPCC uh, special report on oceans and stratosphere. I'll just present what are the key global outcomes uh, um, uh, of the report. And then second part of my uh, talk will be on what implication it has on India and on, especially for its water resources. Then we'll get into a question and answer. So this is a, a special report. So uh, between the fifth assessment cycle and the sixth assessment cycle, which is presently going on, IPCC came um, uh, with three special reports. Now, special reports were short-term uh, reports. And so this report, which was actually focused on the issues of two uh, 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 you know, ecological system, oceans, and cryosphere and they are interconnected systems also. Um, uh, so cryosphere is something which is a frozen part of the world. So it's more kind of a glaciers, permafrost, all this put together. Um, so that is cryosphere and ocean uh, systems. So they were trying to see, we were trying to understand the interconnected between these and the connectedness between these two systems at the same time, trying to understand uh, what is, uh, you know, especially what is happening to these two systems based on the uh, changing climates. This is um, a report which is published in 2019. Um, about a an year and a half before. Um, so uh, the report has about 104 authors from different parts of the world. And unfortunately, um, working on gender, I must report that about 30% of these authors were women uh, from 36 countries altogether, authors were there. And we had looked into about 7,000 uh, peer-reviewed journal articles and papers, all latest information uh, from 2014 onwards, uh, which uh, was uh, covered to give us a kind of a brief understanding of what is uh, happening in terms of climate change. So the way IPCC works is that it doesn't do its own research. It only collects the information um, as um, uh, which is there, uh, published literature which is there within a certain period of time, and then it uh, assesses. So as researchers, as uh, uh, lead authors, um, we were assessing the uh, different papers. So we looked at about 7,000 research papers for uh, contributing this report. Uh, we also, it's also IPCC process uh, is an iterative process. So you each each uh, draft is sent out, uh, kept in public domain, and also there's a government review, there's a special reviews and all that. So we had about thirty-one thousand comments on the draft, um, uh, which we we answered and we looked into. So it's a very um, process which is quite robust. Let me just come to key findings of the uh, systems uh, the, of the uh, report. So one is about the polar regions. You must be knowing that the the uh, the, the North Pole and the South Pole, the because of uh, uh, changing climate, what is happening here? So first is that the uh, uh, the finding was that the Greenland and the Antarctic uh, ice sheets are losing its mass balance. It's accelerating. Uh, and also accelerating global uh, sea level rise. And as uh, the glaciers are melting and the frozen part of the world um, as you no know, glaciers start melting, it is, uh, it, uh, the report says it's going to continue to melt uh, coming to the long-term global sea level rise. So as the glaciers are melting, it contributes to a sea level rise because the water flows down to the, to the, uh, to the sea. And that is what uh, it's, uh, and due to global warming, this has been a major issue. Second is the Arctic sea uh, ice, which is declining every month of the year. Uh, you know that the Arctic, uh, Arctic sea is um, ice is a formation which actually contributes to uh, to this uh, North Pole and South Pole, and it also regulates the world's environment. And that's how the you know this uh, the the the, uh, the sea ice decline is a major uh, kind of uh, indicators of the changing climate array. They are rapidly changing climate. Second part was in terms of sea level level rise. So the um, uh, during this 20th century, we found that the global mean sea level rose, but only about 15 centimeters. 
but um, in the um, uh, latter part uh, when the climate change impact was much more sharper it started to uh, you know rise twice as fast and then it's, it is accelerating um, what it is doing is that many low lying coastal cities and small islands they have been exposed to the risk of flooding there's a ocean is much more warmer more acidic and uh, uh, that is uh, leading to um, uh, a lot of issues uh, around the production of that so if you see uh, changes in the ocean system uh, we find that what 90% of the excess heat in the climate system uh, is taken up by the ocean ocean is warmed about 0.8 degree from the uh, from the pre industrial um, you know time uh, that is 1880 uh, around and then so so that warming up actually uh, contributes to um, uh, one, two things one is that the fish production will be uh, is declining globally uh, because of the warming of the oceans the coral reef and other things which is very important part of the uh, uh, of the ocean system they are also being affected there's a marine heat wave which is actually uh, affecting a lot of species uh, and the same time what is also happening is that it is feeding into the cyclone system so uh, cyclones are expected to be more frequent more free, severe and the impact is going to be much higher and we are already seeing in india when i'll come to india i'll just explain to you how is it impacting uh, these uh, impacts uh, in terms of marine uh, system again uh, the shift in uh, fish production then you have this uh, you know uh, and which is the seafood uh, production declining is as a risk to uh, nutritional and uh, health and food security uh, issues uh, also there's a, as you may have seen there's a lot of pollution issues in in the oceans and all the plastic that we are not treating it is going to uh, ocean and that's also creating a lot of uh, uh, issues uh, and uh, it is impacting and fishing community there's a huge la coastal line of uh, people who actually uh, depend on fisheries uh, for their daily survival their life is in uh, uh, is uh, threatened uh, let me just come to uh, what can be done you know so the uh, i think the first thing is that we need to um, highlight that the, these issues are to be taken as urgent issues you know so that is what we have to prioritize in terms of the timely ambitious and the coordinated actions so one is that you know these systems are both these systems are interrelated we need to also have understanding of how are they interrelated same time we also have to take action and that is one part that we would like to emphasize on um, uh, looking at how we can empower local people communities and the government to tackle these issues so one portion is to keep highlighting these issues as it comes along but it also leads to uh, some kind of action at the local level and um, i think one portion which is also important is about uh, education and literacy climate literacy part of it that we need to make this information available to the local people to as much as many people as we can so that we can take coordinated action on that part let me just quickly come in terms of what are the implications of uh, uh, this on india uh, if you see um, this is the picture of uh, himalayan uh, himalaya uh, himalaya so himalayan region the hindu kush himalayan region is about uh, starting from afghanistan it covers about eight countries and all the way goes to myanmar and this is a zoomed in a zoomed out uh, uh, you know a picture of himalayas what you can see is um, uh, himalayas also uh, home to um, you know uh, 10 river basins big river basins are they are all originate from himalaya so himalayas are called the third pole so you have this two north pole and south pole which are the largest reserves of ice um, apart from the north pole and south pole the only place where the one of the largest reserve of ice is there is the himalayas so himalayas are very important and it's also important because as you see from this picture uh, 
all the major rivers of south asia actually flows from you know originates in himalayas and they also flow so himalayas provides base flow uh, to most of the rivers and they originate from there and if you if i point out here in this big in this area which is the kailash mansarovar which is actually a nectar from where most of the rivers are flowing and that's why this is very sacred for us in hindu buddhist literature jain literature um, and environmentally it is very very sensitive uh, and that's what it's very important for us to know that uh, the importance of himalayas in our lives uh, uh, what it does is that it actually serves about 210 million people in the entire hks region which is about eight countries if you take the downstream areas and if you see the light blue color here which is uh, the downstream areas included it serves about 1.3 billion people in terms of uh, river system so you have the major rivers of in india in uh, indus ganges and brahmaputra uh, all these rivers that are originating from himalayas so if there's any changes happens in the himalayan system it impacts the river directly and the water flow directly so altogether we are finding that about 3 billion people um, who benefit from the food system which is uh, which is uh, dependent on the water systems so very very important there are about 54000 glaciers um, in the himalayan region and uh, very few of them are actually been monitored and that's another issue probably we can discuss sometime later on terms of the glaciers monitoring and impacts on and we have covered some of these things in our last discussions uh, when indra was coordinating that part let me just come to very quickly on two slides and then we'll um, open it up for question and answer one is in terms of the key implications of the himalayas so as i said there are uh, 10 himalayan in for, for india there are about 10 himalayan states two himalayan territories altogether about uh, 86 million people live in those areas that's something which is directly impacted um, so any risk which is there in terms of the glacier you must have heard about the glaciers catastrophe that has happened very recently in um, uttarakhand um, all these issues are directly so the high risk uh, uh, zone which is there in himalayas due to climate change the glaciers declining the decreasing of uh, retreating of glaciers has an impact on that one so that's an, and altogether about the about uh, this 86 million population is going to be increasing to about 110 million so that's the direct uh, uh, impact what we also found and this not the other reports that is showing us that about if if we if we uh, go about 1.5 degree of global warming uh, this is uh, going to be 2 uh, degree for himalayas that's because the himalayas are the higher level so the elevation dependent warming is going to be uh, more impactful for uh, for himalayas and uh, the one projection is that if the same rate in which we are doing the business as usual scenario which is going on about we'll lose about one third two third of the glaciers but 64% of the glacier will be lost by end of the century and actually a lot of these things are already been seeing now and that is something which is going to be uh, because himalayas are the reserve for fresh, fresh water right so it's reserved in the form of an ice and that if it impacts uh, um started uh, you know retreating then uh, uh, then uh, it will impact the water flow in the centuries to come so what happens to himalayas will affect about 2 billion people altogether living in asia um, all across asia and that is something it's a huge number so it's a huge number of people who are dependent on himalayas let me just come to the coast and coastal areas and if you see um, um, <coughs> about uh, this the sea level rise uh, is about as i said earlier globally it is for 15 cm it's rising about 3.6 mm per year and also accelerating and that is means that you know uh, india which has about 7500 km long coastline it has about nine coastal states 
two union territories, um, altogether a direct population about 550, 560 million people, uh, and about 200 million people are directly affected. So if you take the first 10 kilometers from the coastal line, about 200 million, million people are are directly dependent on them and most of them are actually one of the poorest because they are fisher folk people uh, fisher folk and then they're dependent on the sea for their livelihood second poor, poor part is uh, you know as i said earlier the ocean is more acidic it's more warmer and it feeds into more and more cyclones and the coastal cities like mumbai kolkata chennai goa vijayak are these cities are at a much greater risk and you must be uh, whenever you hear anything about uh, new cyclones coming you will understand that these are also climatic events because it feeds into from the global warming process. The uh, uh, sea is actually a carbon sink, uh, so it absorbs a lot of uh, carbon which is which is put in the atmosphere, and it's in, in that process is becoming warmer and warmer, and then it's feeding into the cyclones. So this is my last slide. I want to just focus on what can be done, and because this is a lot of problem identification that we already know what the problems are, what can be done. And uh, I'll try and slate out some pro programs, some issues which could be discussed further. So I'll very quickly go through them. One is definitely about climate proofing our development programs. So our development programs have to be looked into from the climate lens. And that means that, um, you know, we have to map uh, the high risk areas. Um, um, and then, uh, you know, we have to tune in our development program according to the risk zone in which they fall in. So if the coastal areas development program has to be different than Himalayan programs, or for a drought reason, it just has to be very different where heat waves are the most prominent one. Second is our infrastructure is not tuned to climate uh, climate change process. If you see one, uh, two days of big rain in Delhi, Mumbai, or Hyderabad, it drowns the half the city. That means our, our infrastructure is not resilient because it has not been able to it's not designed to have 200 millimeter of rainfall in just three days. So, so that is where we have to look into the future. We have to see the projections of the climate scientists and then make our infrastructure climate resilient as much as possible. All full proofing is not, not been possible, but at least the extent of this, whatever possible can do. Third is we need to have a much better early warning systems. I think the weather uh, part of it is important, but for example, the glacier avalanche that has happened uh, uh, in Uttarakhand, we were totally caught unaware uh, because we had no very limited early warning system because the glaciers were not monitored. So we need to have much more um, ways in which we have to, uh, you know, uh, look into the early warning system. Then we also have to see uh, what are the institutional innovations that we have to tackle disasters and resilient livelihood practices because first thing it does is it affects the livelihood uh, areas. Then we're looking at uh, sustained and long-term monitoring programs, sharing our information because these are some of these ocean systems or the glacier systems are shared systems. So I was talking about eight countries sharing Himalayas. There are more than one countries uh, sharing the ocean resources and the things. So you have a shared resources. So this has to be, the data has to be shared. So we have to have much more international or regional cooperations to uh, see what uh, um, information that we have that we can share with others. And the last part is definitely have to be mitigating our efforts, but you also have to adapt, adapt, and adapt. That's because uh, adaptation, mitigation is a long-term phenomena. If you stop everything, climate change will take 30 years to fix it. So that means um, we need to really adapt ourselves as much as possible. We have to adapt ourselves. So here I'll end my, uh, you know, very quick uh, interjections here, and then I'll go over to uh, Indra in case she has any questions.
yeah i'll stop sharing in the like thank you uh, thank you uh, anjal i think uh, it must have been a challenge for you because given the kind of number of papers and authors uh, you know and the comments to all that information together to put it succinctly briefly and simply in us in a few slides i think that's an art and that takes time and actually you have to think so that so thank you very much for putting it all uh, together for us and uh, i just a quick comment i really like what you mentioned about the spiritual connection with the himalayas in different religions so i think we need to leave the religion part aside but there is a certain logic science why spiritual you know and spirituality why you look at the himalayas as as a kind of a, a sacred so i think that's a and once you can make that spiritual connection with people i think then it's uh, you know then there's more uh, linkage and then more people want to do uh, you know uh, to make the changes that are, are required so uh, I just have a few uh, questions uh, uh, based on the presentation, and from what you presented to us, we have like millions of people who are going to be affected, you know, right from the Himalayan states, but all the way down to uh, to West Bengal, and then we have this coastline, a uh, number of people residing in the in the coastal area. So it's it's a huge it's a huge impact that's going to be there already in a scenario where we are struggling with meeting the water demands of uh, of different uh, different sectors i just wanted to uh, check with you that uh, could you expand a bit more on the you know what is the impact of the declining glaciers on the on the himalaya because uh, i do understand that if it melts at a faster rate we're going to have more water in the in shorter periods of time and then eventually we will end up with a scenario where there is uh, hardly any water left in the rivers, which are already affected. There's hardly any flow because of the development projects that we are doing. We also know that there is reports come in saying that you know surface water bodies in the Ganga Brahmaputra in the Ganga Basin have are drying up. There's also rapid depletion of the groundwater in the in the Ganga River Basin. So this whole connection between surface and groundwater, and now with this you know with this thing about melting glaciers. So how do you how do you see that? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Indira. Very few people have actually made this connection. I actually have written a paper for Observer Research Foundation where I actually put this groundwater and surface water and I actually called it connecting a dot because this, this is not very sharply uh, connected as of now, even by the scientific community. But let me just come to very quickly on the glacier part. See, what has happened is that when the as the glaciers decline, it changes the water regimes very drastically. So one is uh, it uh, because it also contributes to a regulating climate uh, of the Himalayas. Uh, what happens that you have uh, you know uh, the monsoon patterns are going to uh, as affected. So when you need rain, you will not get rain. When you don't need rain, you know you have the uh, um, uh, kind of uh, an excessive rain. What in Hindi we call ativristi and anavristi. So what happens here is that one, one major thing what we what I see is that the flood, the flash flood comes, the kind of a glacial avalanche that you see is a very rare event, but flash flood comes or the flood comes every year, almost, you know, Bihar and uh, Brahmaputra regions, if you see Northeast, especially Assam, uh, all these areas get flooded. And that's because the river systems have been disturbed to an extent that it is very difficult to predict what is going to happen next. That's unpredictably unpredictability of a part is what climate change brings in uncertainty, unpredictability, and that is you have can do least about because what you can do is that you can only when I'm saying adapt, adapt, adapt. 
that means that you have to improve our systems of information knowledge and share of this knowledge so that we can reach out to a larger number of people because you can't control the system which has already been broken so that's one part of it second is that it uh, you know as i said the uh, himalayan uh, the glaciers are providing base flow for the rivers um, and depending on different rivers but for example indus river it has a huge number of about 30 to 35% of the water actually flows in the indus rivers actually come from the glaciers melt but if they started melting faster in a different way then it affects the river system and people are living downstream are going to be directly affected similarly in indus in the ganges region the most of the water flow in the river comes from the, the uh, from the precipitation that happens downstream much less comes from the glacier flow but the glaciers are the one which gives you a, a kind of a flow from the underneath so it also a groundwater systems in the uh, in the form of uh, springs for example so most of the himalayan region especially in the indian himalayan region otherwise also spring is the major source for drinking water now you work in that space and you know how important it is uh, for so you can see large river grow, flowing down but you can't access the water because your source of water is spring and that is a system which is a very interconnected system so within the surface groundwater system and if that spring uh, you know, spring declines because of the change in the water regime um, you will have a huge problem and we still are those issues are at bay so in very quickly in, in these are the major things the floods will be there the spring drying uh, is happening all over the and the um, other kind of change in the water regimes of the rivers so i think from what i'm hearing from you uh, anjali i also think that this makes and this also links to your question of uh, resi building really resilience and also adapting is that we go in more we tap into the traditional wisdom that this country had of basically catching water where it falls of conserving water to small eco region specific water conservation measures so and which actually serve both purposes they can kind of handle the flow uh, if there is a flash flood if you have structures ready and waiting to you know to absorb some of that water then that intensity of that uh, flood can also reduce sure. and that then that also influences the the dynamic balance between the groundwater and the surface water and you can get the water available when you know when there is no uh, water available because in bihar also we keep hearing that are baad aayi and ek mahine baad se are sukha pad gaya you know so this you i think we can we just need to again and again reinforce the need for going local and looking at water conservation uh, Yeah. measures which people are involved and where you can kind of conserve uh, and reduce the impact of the disaster to whatever level that is uh, uh, that is uh, possible just interrupt you indra you made a very important point and i just want the audience to understand this a little more especially from my understand my uh, you know grounded uh, uh, field work that i've done in bihar uh, looking at the himalayan rivers that that flow from uh, from uh, from himalayas from nepal and it drains in bihar um see uh, in bihar the ancient system and when you mention this uh, system ancient system of water management in bihar was that the when the water used to flow when the you know this kind of floods used to come or the excessive water used to come from the nepal uh, region there was this whole connection of, uh, of how water from the rivers it will connect to small ponds so each villages in madhubani district for example there are numerous ponds and uh, uh, you know uh, they call it khal Nal and the Khal systems are there. Ahar Pine system, which is in South yes, Bihar, sir. which is mm -hmm. which is very much connected with this thing. So water used to be carried for 400, 500 kilometers down the ram, and each drop of water was actually diverted and utilized. This is a beautiful system, uh, you know, developed over 
centuries of our uh, engagement has been systematically destroyed. I'm sorry to say that I think it's post independence is much more. I mean, definitely the, the Britishers have destroyed the systems of much before because the canalization came in without this is super in, imposing with the with the traditional system which was already there but at the same time i think the most destruction also happens post independence because the system was, was not understood and you know the huge issues of flood have been now uh, arriving you know and there's the same problem happening in uh, indus system uh, same in the ganges system at the same time brahmaputra systems also so, but yeah, it's a it's rays of hope come in the form of people in some places are actually reviving these systems to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so that's what we One can. Question: Somebody is asking what is khals. So khals are the small ponds actually. So what used to happen then the water flows, it you it will be directed towards this small chain of uh, you know uh, tank system. So the tank will be all interconnected. So it will fill up one tank on the topography, then it'll go to second tank, third tank, and that chain will bring it back to the river system. It was a beautiful design system, and that is very similar to what we have the tank systems of South Asia, which is South India, which South has been like so in Telangana, in Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, beautiful system was there, but we systematically destroyed. We took each one of them and destroyed them to an, to an extent that is beyond repair now. And Indra has worked uh, quite many years on these issues. So, yeah. So, uh, coming to uh, one of the recommendations you made that was looking at uh, to have climate resilient infrastructure. I think that's what you uh, uh, that you mentioned. And I think uh, I want to check with you whether this is what you've had in mind. Say, for example, now we know that in urban areas, there's a lot of because of the so-called pressure on land, uh, you know, so the, a lot of the, the catchments of, uh, of lakes, of ponds, they are being encroached upon, you know. You make uh, ponds are like converted into dump dumping areas so that it becomes useless. And then gradually the real estate market takes over that and then you have construction. So I think uh, keeping that in mind to see that the natural drainage channels that were existing, that exist in a particular urban area, maybe we can actually relook and see how much of that we can kind of uh, reclaim and see at least in the future, we don't uh, engage in this kind of activity anymore. and. Anjali, we'd be happy to know that there are lots of people along in within India who are working with rivers, especially in urban areas, but they're trying to protect the river in urban areas. And while when we say protect the rivers, that means they're trying to look at the catchment to prevent yeah. pollution coming into the rivers and also looking at protecting the catchment because these are the systems I think that will come in uh, in use when you know when like you said that you know though though bun pani ni Delhi mein flooding uh, flooding ho gaya also but Delhi government had started something some years ago looking at like you know when there's a lot of water in the Yamuna and it's flooded you have these structures which absorb because it's got a sandy uh, bed so you absorb the water which then can be used to provide a base flow uh, to the Yamuna so is this something that you had in mind when you were talking of resident yeah, infrastructure so it's, it, this is included actually, this point is included, but I'm okay. also saying that because the drainage system uh, is pretty old in our, in, in most of our cities, the new drainage systems have not been laid out or has been partially laid out. And we, we don't have, see, Indra, all these years, and I'm sure you will agree with me, is that we, uh, with all the effort, we have not even made one city fully sanitized. So we can't, you know, claim that, okay, this city, even if however small it is, it's fully sanitized and it has all the drainage channels uh, intact. And that is a problem of our urbanization that it has been very haphazard and it has 
been also not very uh, one is not able to um, you know so there was no urban planning which has informed this whole process so it is the engineering led process and you know uh, it's like an eject solution and that is a major issue so apart from what you said i would also add that the the drainage infrastructure the uh, other uh, you know uh, uh, infrastructure that is suited to uh, adapt to climate change especially in urban areas um, we need to adapt to that one we need to get into those issues so i have one i have many questions but i'll just ask one last one because there are certain questions that have come from the uh, people who are with us and that is uh, two actually uh, one is looked at because of the rising uh, uh, sea levels in coastal areas what does this mean for the water resources in terms of uh, salinity ingress into uh, into the coastal areas and the second question is what is it that we can do as civil society or even as a himalayan region is this how can we enhance our cooperation yeah okay so i'll very quickly answer because i think there are no questions here maybe we can take them up as much as we can with the time permitting but um, uh, one is definitely you know this there's a agriculture is now totally getting into groundwater based agriculture so the coastal areas where agriculture is in full swing the water seawater ingress into freshwater bodies has been rampant and uh, it is destroying the water bodies and especially the uh, drinking water uh, issues are coming up and uh, the that is also impacting the health uh, of the people so uh, when you are having and more and more uh, uh, you know other cases have been rise up in the eastern india that you have this chloride uh, the not chloride the arsenic issues which is coming up so all these issues are there but salinity has its own um, uh, problem and that is something that we know sea level rise is actually contributing so climate change is a force multiplier if your systems of environment management is not intact it is only only going to intensify those systems right so in this case in the coastal areas they already have rampant groundwater destructions uh, extraction which is going on see what is already intruded on the top there's a sea level rise accelerated sea level rise that is going to infuse it so how will you stop it that is one part of it so if you your suggestion is very right that we need to have the water management system in a way that it keeps the sea away from the whole the whole areas and that is one area coming to what civil society can be done there's a huge number of uh, things that can be done but i'll point out to the young people i think uh, your generation and i'm second generation and yours and i think we have failed to uh, protect our environment i i guess now i'm almost 50 and i think that i have only 10 years of professional life left um, and some more years maybe to voluntary uh, do things voluntary but i i pay, i put a lot of space now uh, weight on the young people people who are in early 20s who are in a, you know they these are the people we need to galvanize i think there's something that we need to really do and you and i you know people with who has this experience we can only share those experience and galvanize people to come as a force to protect our environment otherwise it's not going to happen so my suggestion actually is to get into a campaign mode get into a movement mode and just protect our environment that's the only thing and young people is what i'll put all my weight on okay and uh about how can we work as a himalayan region across yeah, boundaries yeah so himalayan region is ha huh, that is what see these are glaciers are shared uh, shared systems so we need to and that's where regional cooperation has to have happen now my earlier um, you know job was with ac mode which was a, which is a scientific institution supposed to have a coordinated effort with the thing and they're doing a lot to get the data scientific data information which is there but there's a lot left to be desired see south asia we are you know we also are in a political system where we are not talking to some countries uh, you know eye to eye and uh, there has been lot of issues and 
that is impacting on the glacier. So you have big giant like India and China, who's as much as a polluter as any of the uh, part of the you know Western world uh, in terms of the CO2 emissions. In fact, the China is the largest CO2 emitters of the world at this moment of time. Um, same like India's economy is growing, and that economy has uh, when the growth happens, it is at the cost of the environment. Uh, so when it comes to Himalayan region, probably we need to have a much more uh, a kind of a better understanding and the cooperation to at least share the information, the data that we have. And that level also, there are a lot of challenges I see. I think that's where civil society can, you know, track to diplomacy something. Absolutely. People I think that, to people that's, uh, connection yes. can. A lot of work actually happens there. Okay, so let's just go to some of the questions that were there. Uh, Anjal, several of the questions were around... Uh, the Jaljeevan mission is like, what are the major governance challenges in ensuring uh, clean drinking water in cities? How will the Jaljeevan mission ensure that no household suffers from poor quality water? Uh, there was also a question on what is India doing to stop glacier melting? Yeah, okay. So um, let me this, yeah. Yeah, let me just first come to the Jaljivan mission. See, I've written very recently on one of my articles in the newspaper about the, um, I think on the World Water Day only, that about Jaljivan mission, mission that is. One is that I really applaud that it's one of the most ambitious program, uh, probably in terms of you know reaching out and Har Ghar Jal program is something that is really a need of the hour because it's I, I totally applaud these governments understanding that for all these years that we are independent, we have not been able to think that you know everybody needs a tap of their own. So that is one thing is very ambitious and it's also very progressive in understanding and reaching out to people, especially the largest, the poorest of our our uh, you know uh, country. So that's one part. The challenges that I see here is that one is that um, uh, the mapping of the district based on the priority district, for example. Um, I had written that uh, you know we need to map because this is based on the groundwater exploitation index, but that has the data which has been, uh, that's the only data. But here, what I'm also saying that because the looming climate crisis that we are seeing day in and day out, we also need to map it on the climate risk uh, index. And if you superimpose these two, uh, you will be able to get a matrix of which area and how do we suit technology. And I'll give you one example that, you know, accessing water, for example, in Himalayan regions, from a spring source is very different than accessing water in Telangana, which is through a pond source and this one. So the source sustainability aspect, the uh, integrating understanding of how water will be uh, sourced and supplied, that part is something that we, I think we need to strengthen. And I think each one of us are responsible towards that in terms of reaching out to the government and you know sharing our experiences on that part. So I'm not held holding them accountable, but at the same time, requesting that this could also be one areas in which we can work further on this one. So that will be my take on the Jaljivan mission, but I really see it a very ambitious program, um, but it also needs to protect the source of the water because that's the sustainability part is very important. Um, what was the other question? Uh, the other, yeah, there were three around, how will you ensure, how, what are the governance issues in ensuring uh, safe uh, drinking water in urban areas. Yeah, that urban is areas, this system is very different uh, than the rural areas. In the urban areas, what we, what uh, my personal experience is that in our, again, there's no one city that we have brought in 24 seven water supply. And then a lot of these things are dependent on tanker mafia. Now, uh, about five, six, seven years, I've done a study back in Hyderabad. And I looked at the uh, tankers, uh, which is, uh, you know, the calculation of the tankers, 
um, which was uh, then it about half of the city hyderabad city is actually unserved and especially the new areas the high tech cities and all that now the water banjira water and the water is coming but 10 years before when the city 15 years before the city was been developed as an it hub of the world uh, water sanitation issues was not the priority and what has happened is that it has drained the peri urban water resources because all these big housing societies all the it companies actually sourcing water from the peri urban areas through tankers and that tanker mafia is a very strong nexus between the local politician the tanker companies and the uh, the uh, uh, you know uh, officials who were hand in glove with this whole process and that has drained out the lot of uh, peri-urban water resources um, at for cost but only few got benefit because these are shared resources so coming to uh, again just in the time is very short but very quickly um, urban areas we need to really discuss um, and find out a different ways in which we can reach out at least this is more especially for the poor uh, because they are the one who are displaced benefited by the whole process so there's a question uh, uh, anjal one of our uh, viewers edward walter i think he's saying that he wants to work on water so you inspired some youth apparently in, in saying that they take on the mantle from us and do a better job than what we have done i think absolutely in spite absolutely. of in spite of all our uh, efforts there's also another question around uh, indigenous uh, knowledge i think you answered that when you spoke about the tanks of south india and when you spoke about the systems that existed in uh in bihar here i want to check with uh simi are there any uh, questions that have come from uh, facebook or anywhere else quickly we can put them across no ma'am so simi most of them yes ma'am so most of yeah. them were related to the questions that are listed here so okay i think we are good yeah I'll okay, answer so, one or two questions. Maybe I'll just quickly respond to them. And I see uh, uh, people like Ayushi, Edward, all these people, young people, I assume, uh, are uh, asking about certain campaign and all that. And I, I direct them to IM PRI because I think that's the organization and, and Tarun Bharat sir yes. and the other people who are involved in this one. And I'm very happy to support any of such movements, especially the Youth for Climate Change movement, where you can actually bring in, train young people and get them out and do whatever, you know, the protect the environment, whatever way possible. So not controlling that process, but just training them, having some even one day, two day initial training on what are the basics of climate change? How do you do it? What can be done? And then leave them because that's something that is very, very important. I just had a last week only I had a long, uh, you know, a kind of a uh, call with uh, UNICEF who is doing this in in uh, Shipra, who is one of our former colleagues, is organizing and they're doing Youth for Water campaign um, in Risa. Similar kind of thing can be also organized. So Simi and Arjun, um, point uh, for y'all, probably you'll design something and I'll be very happy to voluntarily contribute to this whole process. Definitely, sir. Very, very nice uh, suggestions that you have provided. We'll definitely work towards it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So Anjal, thank you, because uh, like I have discussed with you and we have been discussing with Impri that uh, we don't want to just have these webinars. We want to collate the knowledge we get through these webinars and see how we can take it forward through different campaigns or different action. And it's very heartening to know that uh, Anjal, you have committed to support us in this uh, uh, in this in this endeavor of us. And uh, to all people who are listening to us, if you all have any suggestions on how we can improve this program, if you have uh, kind of names of people or experiences which you feel could add value to this effort of us, please feel free to contact us so that we can make this a more engaging and more uh, 
yeah, interactive kind of uh, kind of session. And I think after we do about 10 such talks, we will kind of take stock and come out with a comprehensive paper on what are the issues that came up, what are the solutions, because we're also looking at what are the solutions that are possible to address this uh, mind boggling challenge that is going to, you know, that you're already facing uh, around climate and water. So thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Anjal, for your time. Uh, thank you, Impri, for making this possible and for making all the arrangements. Thank you, Arjun, Simi, thank and the rest you. of the team. Absolutely. Thank you, it was, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Thank Take you. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.